What's up? We back. I'm back. That's John Corbin on the intro and outro again for season four. Welcome to the author's edition. I am Ro Hattie coming at you from Treaty 7 Lands in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. This episode I'm excited to share with you. It's one episode, but it's going to be longer, just under one hour with my friend, Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards. Dennis and I met in Philly at a church planting conference, and I knew a little bit about him and checked out his his talks that he shared. And what struck me, and what strikes me with a, a lot of academics who are pastors or were pastors at one point, there's just a, a different level of connection, I've found at least. And so I value that connection with Dr. Edwards. In this episode, we are going to talk about his book, Might from the Margins, on the second half of it. But on the first half, we're going to talk a little bit about his story as an academic and also as a pastor and what it looks like or what it used to look like to try the kick at the can, as it were, to usher in a church or lead a church into a multi-ethnic setting. It didn't work out. And... We'll explore why it didn't. I think the honesty in his experience as a pastor lends credit to his words and also credit to the scholarship that he does. We'll talk about that on the second half as well. Without further ado, enough from me. Let's jump in and meet Dr. Edwards. Yeah, I was in Chicago before pandemic okay <laughs> um, i don't think it was it, it, it would have been like the fall 2019 for uh what was it called liberating evangelicalism oh, was yes you were there something like that yeah 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 i was there too and oh, um, how did I, miss I was you? yeah i'm saying it because it, it wasn't a huge crowd but it was a good sized group i remember vince bontu gave a talk and i was like yeah, yeah, vince, yeah, he was yeah, like yeah. whoa angela parker these are people i know because she's in the testament also um, uh, Reggie Williams, I know he was there. I did a small workshop that actually was um, the early stages of some of the thoughts on Mike from the Margins. I called it Power to the People, and I did a workshop there. So, yeah, I, I was there at that. That was actually a good gathering. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. It's always, it's always a miss to not be able to see everyone, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, all the yeah. faces you see on I'm social media. Right, right. Well, I'm glad you were there, though, because I, I think we need we needed that kind of, um, and I think we're still getting it, but needed to have those voices that were uh, decentering some of the white evangelical voices. Yeah, I went down because we're doing this work, obviously in in Canada, but it's it, it's different. It's different. It doesn't have the same posture. It doesn't have the same uh, amplified voice. There's not okay. as many people, but it's also in in some ways further ahead at least in the decolonizing side in, in terms of reclaiming back to an education of the land. So an, an indigenous yeah. spirituality, an indigenous land-based teachings. There's more of that, I think, going on. Less influence from a historic black and brown church okay. in okay. Canada, which is in many respects non-existent, especially out west where I am. Okay. Okay. I can. I can. I think I can understand that. I. I, I would be curious at some point, you know, even to learn more because we, after minister in Minnesota, became more aware of, of uh, indigenous voices that I 
you know, in DC, I didn't really hear from as much. Um, and I just feel like you Canadians have a lot to teach us there. And, um, but it's, it's anyway, it was on the radar, but I, but I don't know. I want, I want solidarity, you know, with our indigenous mm. brothers and sisters, but I don't know what that looks like in some places if there's not a strong enough black presence, you know, or, uh, but anyway, that's just something to explore down the road, I think. But I, I feel like it's coming. I feel like we're yeah. moving in that good direction. I wonder how much, in many respects, COVID has has mm. reminded those who are kind of in the middle, let's say anti-Asian racism, for example, mm-hmm. of of that picture of solidarity, which may have not been there before, but suddenly there's more, um, there's an alert or an, a growing awareness in the contemporary mm-hmm. world that you can't just hide as a person of color, uh, that yes. you have to now be drawn into the same fight, as it were, yes, or yes. claim the fight towards liberation. That's that's a good word. Okay, I'm hearing that. Yeah, I, I, it's funny because I was just talking to some folks yesterday that when I saw the uh, Asian American Christian Collaborative growing and developing and then mm-hmm. taken to the streets here in Chicago for Black Lives Matter, that was I was excited. I, I was um, grateful because that, that's a new move in my lifetime. I mean, I, mm. I come up in an era where, you know, I've been a city guy, grew up in New York and lived in DC. And, uh, and there was a lot of tension with say Asian shop owners. Well, you remember the Spike Lee movie, Do the Right Thing. You know, there's this stereotype of, uh, of black folks in the city having, having pressure with Asians who have businesses in the city, but live outside of those communities. And we, we should have had more solidarity and I feel like we were, mm. we lost something. But so now I see the Christians are at least making good moves. I feel good moves to, to build together, build something new together to, and, and COVID, like you said, has kept us in a way avoiding the issues and we have to confront things. So I'm, yeah, I'm hopeful actually for a new sense of, of community, at least with Asian Americans and African Americans and, Certainly Latino, Latina Americans, yeah. Yeah, I have the I have the same sense. I mean, you certainly offer more perspective of uh, of what has happened in the past and how that is different. Like every generation seems to be reiterating the same things, and you can read uh, Dr. King today and realize nothing has changed in sixty years. And so, wow. in some ways, you can you can you can feel as though we're stuck, but then, yeah, the, the, the Asian piece is there. That's the piece of demand, the demands of whiteness in many respects of the demands to assimilate. And yes. if you're in that middle for Asians, you can just keep your head down. You know, that's very Japanese. Keep your head down like a turtle, poke it out once in a while, but just work, work, work. And mm. maybe you will be afforded the uh. benefits of whiteness. And then yeah. COVID comes in to remind all these Asians who look remotely, who don't look anything Chinese, right? But, you know, Chinese enough that you come with the terms and conditions too. And you just happen to forget about that. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's, that's deep though. But I, I was seeing that. I mean, cause, and, and obviously our president down here mm. exacerbated all of that. And, uh, and, and now still there's backlash on Asians, but the way you said it is, I, I mean, I can't speak from that perspective, but the idea of like sort of putting your head down and going at it, but I've seen African-Americans who've tried to assimilate that way too and say, look, mm-hmm. I'm just gonna 
do the best I can. I'm going to put my head down, do my work. And if I'm good, you know, whatever that means, I, I, I can stay out of, I can avoid any issues and trouble. And that doesn't happen either. I mean, because you get you get pegged, stereotypes, you still get pulled over by the cops. I mean, all that kind of stuff happens. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, you said it well. I want to give a little bit of intro now, a little bit <laughs> of also your experience, because you're in a unique space in that you're an academic, you teach New Testament, um, but you also... I think you still hold credentials, right? But you you have a lot right. of experiences as a lead pastor in the yeah. Evangelical Covenant Church. Is that yes, right? that's most recently yeah. I am uh, credentialed in the Evangelical Covenant Church. That's right. Let's talk about let's talk first about your work as a pastor because, mm-hmm. and I, I want to dig in just a little bit with it. But uh, there's some good work, some attempts around leading multiracial churches. Right. And that was your experience in, in D.C.? Is yes, yes. How long well, ago was yeah, that? I, I, that was, uh, I, I went to D.C. In nine, at, the, at the beginning of 95. In fact, my first Sunday was January 1, 1995. So mm-hmm. that's a while ago. Prior to that, I was a church planter in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm from New York City. And uh, I so, know. I mean, I'll just tell you real quickly, my, my, um, my journey is very circuitous. I think the issue was, me trying to find a home, mm. a theological and ecclesiological home where I could be myself. And uh, and I didn't grow up in a very stereotypical African-American church, you know, because mm. I probably would have just stayed there. Mm-hmm. But I wound up, um, uh, the short version is um, in my college years, met up with some white evangelicals. So I visited around different churches, attended an African-American Baptist church. But I, you know, I didn't really since my own call to ministry until a little later. And by that time, it was a white pastor, an evangelical free church pastor, who told me I should go to seminary. Now, he told me I should go to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And that's the denomination with the evangelical free church. He hadn't gone there, but he felt like that would be good for me. Uh, I, wasn't sure, I wasn't sure, but right around that same time, there was an African-American pastor new to the evangelical free church who was getting a lot of press here in Chicago, as a matter of fact. So I thought, well, maybe there is a place for me as an African-American in this denomination. So I went to Trinity. I did well there. And and the church I attended on the west side of Chicago had made a name for itself in being, I think at the time we were using the language of multiracial. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, I'd like to see something like this in New York. So I went back to New York to plant a church. Didn't know anything about planting church. I, uh, the denomination wasn't given any money, although they would... Uh, like publicize you, like put your name out there to different uh, churches and in the denomination publications. And my picture was there, my wife and I and our little children. So so there was a little bit of, of publicity, but no money. So I went back to teaching school and everything. So we planted a church called New Community and New Community struggled uh, for, I mean, we don't have any money. I'm teaching school, all of that. <laughs> but that was my first attempt at multi-ethnic. I think that's the word we use now. And in New York, it certainly fit multi-ethnic ministry, then D.C., then Minneapolis. Yeah. So, yeah, that was my first experience. And then I went to D.C. I served a church that was founded by Mennonites. So I shifted my credential and I got ordained in the Mennonite church. I became the lead pastor there. But that I talk about in my book. That's where a lot of the my real stark issues with race and power yeah. came into play. Yeah. And then we planted another church called Peace Fellowship in a different part of D.C., 
And I did that, was there for 11 years before I went to Minnesota. And I sort of ended my pastoral career in Minnesota and became a full-time professor. Let's uh, stick to D.C. here and your experience, because I think it's it's, uh, worth hearing because, now fill in the blanks for me, Mm -hmm. there was an ideal or perhaps a hope, do you think, of trying to find unity in racialized diversity? Yes, yes, well said. I, when I um, learned about the position, this church on Capitol Hill, um, I, um, I learned about it through one of John Perkins' old publications. They were advertising um, about this church. I applied and friends of mine said, look, Dennis, you know, churches take a long time to make a decision. I got a call like within a week of sending my stuff and the pastor said, we'd really like to talk to you. And I'm, I'm not naive. I knew part of it is because I'm black mm-hmm. and they, okay. and it's DC. DC was called chocolate city. I mean, DC was a majority black city. So when I got to interview and this of course before the social media and all you know, computer and all that stuff. So I had to physically go down to DC. And when I went down to DC and met with the search committee, I was sort of, I was impressed that they had this church in the city with resources, with a building Mm -hmm. and trying to connect with its neighbors. So Mm -hmm. I thought, man, of course I would want to be part of this. I knew I was a racial minority at the church, but the the rhetoric, the language Mm -hmm. was that Mm -hmm. we wanted to be a church for our community, for our city. And we know we're all mostly white. Um, uh, In fact, even in in the description of the church, they meant that mentioned the percentage of African-Americans who come to the church, which I thought was interesting to put in the descriptor of the church. Mm-hmm. And I still remember it was 6% African-American. So at a church of about 400, that meant 24 or so people are black mm-hmm. or African-Americans. That's not a lot. And uh, no, not a lot in a city that's, you know, at the time was like 70% African-American. So I, I knew there were challenges, but the overture to me was that you could help us be better representative of our community. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I guess we'll skip the middle. How did that go? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the weird part about it was, I mean, if I'm really honest, the masses of people, young adults, um, you know, I I don't want to overstate it, but they really loved me. I mean, I had a good, warm connection with so many people that, and that was as the associate and the lead pastor went on to go, he had as a PhD. So he went on to go teach someplace while I was actually doing my PhD studies at the same time, but he went off to go teach. So, there was this weird place where I was the associate, didn't think I fit there because the pressure I was having was from leadership, not from the masses of people in the pew who liked my preaching. They liked me as a person, like my family and not just like, I mean, I think they respected, hmm. but the people, people in power were seeing that the church was changing, that hmm. there was different energy I am, um, I'm an amateur musician. I'm not very good, but I'm a, a decent woodwind player. So I, I used to have a praise team that I put together and my praise team, uh, we had different musicians. So we take turns. We had probably about five or so different praise teams that would take turns leading worship. And my praise team got a lot of um, excitement because I brought a diversity of voices and people to the, to the team that got pushed back. Something as simple as that. I mean, it was like, mm-hmm. it was like my presence and the way of doing ministry was challenging the status quo of some white folks, where, whereas the masses of people were loving it. So the short version of a mm-hmm. really long story is that it was the power folks that really had a hard time with me. I got vo- voted in to be the lead pastor after the other guy left. And, um, and that's when it really got tough. 
some of the uh, power folks they started leaving the church, which which sent some anxiety to the um, to the you know people managing the budget and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And they were they were feeling like Dennis is you know pushing people away. Mm-hmm. Uh, white mm-hmm. folks from the suburbs were saying you know there's no place for us. Dennis only cares about the city. That's actually a quote. Dennis only cares about the city. There's no place for us. Like it's you know like God's table isn't big enough. And uh, so with all that anxiety, I couldn't get anything done. So I actually resigned. And mm-hmm. that was that was really tough. Yeah. I wonder, and this is going to be a loaded question, mm-hmm. but I wonder, I mean, you went through a space where the intent was there to yeah. try to embody something better. Do you think it's possible? I mean, all things are possible, right? But <laughs> Do you think that because the church's church as a whole are so deeply racialized yeah. that finding a space that is indeed truly multi-ethnic is yeah. darn near impossible? Yeah, you know, if 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I certainly would have said, no, of course, this is the way it's supposed to be. I rejected what the church plant, uh, church, you know, missiologist people were calling the homogeneous unit principle, mm-hmm. HUP, that it, the churches grew best as homogeneous units. I was rejecting that. Mm. I have come to a place where I, I don't embrace that. I still don't. I, I want to believe, and I still believe that a multi-ethnic uh, church is is healthy or can be healthy and can model the kingdom of God. However, I have this these howevers about how we deal with power and privilege, and that was the area that never got addressed we were always talking about proximity about getting us in the same room and then you know taking a beautiful picture and putting it on the brochure of people mm-hmm. sitting next to you but we never really reckoned with power mm-hmm. and privilege now i hear people talking about power and privilege so i think if we can get to the place where white folks are will sit and listen and people with means realize that their money doesn't buy them place in church or in or in glory if we can figure out a way, and I think there's movement here, to um, deal with power and privilege, then I think we can talk about the real multi-ethnic church. Hmm. That's a good word. Hmm. I wonder, I don't know, part of me is cynical that any predominantly white church is capable of, of becoming diverse. <laughs> I don't think that you can. Yeah, I, I, don't, mean, I, don't, I, I don't think that's the movement. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, want, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think there's got to be a lot of white folk, white churches divesting themselves of uh-huh. that. And I, I don't know if they would do that. I think they can become either. anti-racist, but I don't think they can become diverse. Right. That's a good word. That's a good word. I, I, I think I agree with you. Yeah. I, and I would wonder, in, in all the attempts of multi-ethnic, I don't think a white man can lead that. And that's too. That's that's a, a blanket statement, and yeah. everyone. Everyone needs to contend with the power systems of white supremacy, whether you're white or not. Right. So you know, I could embody right. the same things. That's right. Um, but I don't. I don't think you have as a as a white male or even a white woman that you have the cultural depth to lead properly in multi ethnic settings. Oh, I, you know, I agree with you, and it it does sound hard because I do have white friends who have really done a lot of good work, mm-hmm. a lot of good homework, sure. and I can. And I commend them for that. <clears throat> but many of them would even say that that doesn't make them necessarily equipped to be um, to be pastor to this multi-ethnic group. Now, I used to hear that all the time. 
I had white pastor friends who would say, oh, my church is like the United Nations. And I said, the United <laughs> Nations has like one white guy up front and a, and a few smattering of people of color inside. Yeah. And I would hear that all the time. Yeah. And I think from their perspective, just the fact that any non-white people came in was like a really big deal. But, but again, it didn't deal with power. It didn't deal with privilege. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I tend to agree with you. Mm-hmm. I think that what, what, what I'm seeing um, is that white folks say, hey, white pastors were like, come on, please come to our church and basically you know, assimilate. And now I think the challenge that they're facing is that you know, people of color, they don't want us. We don't want us. Not all of us want to assimilate. So, so the question is, will you white people come and defer oh, to non-white leadership? Uh-huh. That is not a lot of that. The other way, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't really imagined uh, that direction. I always picture what the third way, what the new way could be. But yeah, to yeah. come into yeah the the quote unquote minority space. But but coming into that space without an expectation of being in charge, mm-hmm. and see, because that's also an issue. Because mm-hmm. you might you might be familiar with um, Corey Edwards. I don't think we're related, but Corey Edwards, the sociologist, has a book called The Elusive Dream. And, and she talks about how in multiracial churches, even if you have pastors of color, uh, they tend to still defer to whiteness because, mm-hmm. you know, if white folks are not satisfied with what's happening, they'll walk. And, and so she basically asserts that the church can be multiracial only to the extent that white people want it to be. So they're still mm-hmm. exercising power, Yikes. even, yeah. though, even yeah. though the leadership is, is, you know, somebody of color. Yeah, so, yeah. That's, that's the challenge to me is how will you, how will you be there as a white person? So much unlearning to do, especially mm-hmm. including for Christians of color. You're a professor of New Testament. Mm-hmm. Where are you? Because you were at Northern. Where are you now? That's right. I'm at North Park which is in Chicago, and it's related, it's where the uh, seminary of the Evangelical Covenant Church. Okay. So it's kind of in line with my ordination, my credential, and I already knew people here, and I was happy to come and be part of the park. Uh, why New Testament? What drew you into that? Why New <laughs> Testament? You know, was... you know I, well, I told you earlier that I grew up in a church that was like a non-traditional African-American church. It wasn't like the mainstream big denomination. I grew up in a little fringe a charismatic church that uh, the denomination would call itself apostolic. Mm-hmm. Might not be so little in fringe anymore, but they were then. Um, so theologically, it was very confusing. I'll just say real quickly, they didn't believe in a trinity. There's just oneness, Jesus only. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, have, you had to be baptized in the name of Jesus and had to speak in tongues to be mm-hmm. saved. These were not like special gifts mm-hmm. if you didn't have okay. all of that experience. So I didn't have, I got baptized, all of that. I didn't speak in tongues right away. So I was like, like a problem. I didn't fit the paradigm. I was, I was uh, going to church and faithful and all that. But the short version of a very long story is that I was confused theologically. So I wanted to know the Bible as best I could. So when I finally started doctoral studies, I honestly thought I was going to pursue the Old Testament because I was always intrigued by the Old Testament. But the programs that I was after um, were going to make that just actually way too long. <laughs> mm-hmm. That would have to do more Semitic language. I already had yeah, Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. I had some Aramaic. They said I had to take yet another Semitic language. So I just emphasized New Testament for pragmatic reasons yeah, at yeah, first. Sure. <laughs> but as I got into it, I started realizing, you know, I, this, I couldn't find that many African-American scholars who were yeah. doing yeah. biblical studies. So I, yeah. I was happy to stay there. 
Yeah, that was uh, one of the pieces I recollect from from seminary for myself, and, and it was ch- totally by chance. Was uh, I never had a woman professor, but I but I had a, a Cree man, a theologian, and a Congolese um, systematic theologian uh, shape and form me. Which at the time it was I didn't realize how how different that was. Yeah. Yeah, it's unusual. And how uh, yeah, how unusual it is. And so to have your voice and within evangelical spaces yeah, in the New Testament, yeah. that that's rare. It is rare. And uh, and I you know I didn't readily take that title evangelical, except I knew the denominations I was around had mm-hmm. it in the title. I just you know just I didn't even think much of it. It was just just this word, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's just but the word. It, 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 it seemed that way to me you know, until now. Of course, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, but I was, I was kind of, uh, my concern with, with people who denied certain um, uh, tenets of the faith, like the literal resurrection of Jesus or, you know, things like that. So at Trinity, they would just classify anybody as liberal that didn't, and, and that wasn't a helpful word for me either. But there were certain denials that I, that I didn't want to, um, to wrap myself around. So I didn't know where I, I wanted to affirm. And so I got my doctorate at a Catholic university that in practice affirmed, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, affirmed mm-hmm. some basic things that I believe. So I felt pretty comfortable there, even though there's still historical critical arguments about, you know, details about scripture and such. That's all cool with me. It was more that I wanted to be around people who actually believed in Jesus and, mm-hmm. um, so I didn't find a lot of African American scholars who were um, that I that I can know personally that could help me in the journey. And I also went part time. I didn't go. I didn't get a chance to like you know pack up and go to Europe and knock it you know get it yeah. done or or get a full ride and do it at you know Harvard or Princeton or something. I would have loved to, but I I it took me nine years altogether to do that doctor so i so i'm i'm the working man's uh you know scholar i know what it's like you know yeah yeah, exactly and uh and in that process i didn't get to meet as many mentors as i wished Mm. i want to talk about your book the latest one Mike mm-hmm. from the Margins, The Gospel's right. Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice. That's a lot mm-hmm. of words in there that you yeah. don't typically <laughs> see in an evangelical book. Uh, I, maybe we shouldn't classify it as that, but um, <laughs> that's not your first book. You have, I think, multiple books, but one on Second Peter, I think? Uh, uh, on First Peter. First Peter. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then a small book on the Bible called What is the Bible and How Should We Understand It? Um, that's in a, um, a Anabaptist series of books called mm-hmm. um, called the Jesus Way. Mm-hmm. It's one. Of, it's one of the series. Yeah. Um, so those those are the books that I've got out right now. And um, yeah, thank you for recognizing. Why first Peter? Hmm. Well, I did my dissertation work in James, and uh, and and in that process, I had occasion to look over First Peter. And the reason that James is because of the justice kind of stuff that mm-hmm. was going on. That goes on in that book, you know. So I thought that I would. Um, so I, anyway, I wound up working through that book and having to look over at First Peter a lot, partly because they both address the people in the di- in the diaspora, which is a, which is not a common term in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So because that's there, I went back and forth. You know, I looked a lot at First Peter. 
Well, by the time uh, this commentary series was coming out, I actually was approached about writing on First Peter. And I asked, Is, has James been taken? Because I thought, wow, I've done a lot of work in James. And, and they had already assigned James to a, to a different scholar. So I said, but you know, First Peter would be my next choice. So I'm excited to get into it. Partly because similar themes of justice, of, of, um, of, of following the way of Jesus in difficult situations, and, and this no, notion of being a member of the dispersion. Those themes are in James. They're also in Peter, First Peter. Let's springboard from diaspora mm-hmm. and flow right into might from the margins. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things in your book right off the bat, which I, I don't know if I've ever read, and it was your line on this book centers marginalized people like that. This is this, this is who I am writing to. Yeah. And to make yeah. note of that in right. and distinction. I noticed it. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're you speaking did. to me. <laughs> so I better notice. He's calling yeah, me out well. right here. Page two. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know, it's funny because when we have these conversations, I say we as Christians now that, that we, um, and get into stuff about race and class or power, privilege. White folks, of course, assume that everything's about them. Mm-hmm. So the question that almost always comes right away is, well, what do you want me to do? And all the, and I had been in, oh my goodness, umpteen workshops in my lifetime and all these spaces. And that's always the question. And then when you say what should be done, then there's resistance. Like, yeah, well, you, yeah. well I'm, you know, my family didn't own slaves and you know, all that kind of stuff. So you go through all of that. And I say, you know what, I'm kind of tired of, feeling like the goal is to get white people to do something different or be different. What I'd like to do is see the rest of us say, we're not waiting for that change. Uh-huh. To yes. You know, yeah. we're not waiting for white folks to get it. No. We have work to do. Uh-huh. And we have we have a gospel that is empowering. We don't need to get yes. our power from white people. So that yes. was the fact. Yes, yes. Uh, you, you did use, and I, I made note of this, but now you answered it because of the James Peter reference of why you're using diaspora Christians instead of, yeah. so I, I, I know, say, Cone and those before, you may have actually referenced, I don't, I don't remember mm-hmm. who, it wasn't Cone, mm-hmm. but the, they would use terms of the disinherited. Yes, yes. Uh, the oh, disinherited sorry. can yeah. understand, the marginalized people, Christian, can right. be drawn into the the effects and the experience of the cross yes, because yes. of their... But you use the terms of uh, diaspora. Are you, are you leveraging out of your work in James? And yes, and yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep, yep you're, you're, you're catching that. Because I think that marginal status could... You know, maybe in First Peter and in James, it's not a literal geographic distancing, right? Mm, mm-hmm. So maybe it's not. But the point is they use that language of geographic distancing to describe the feeling and the situation of their audience. Whether it's literal or not is really not the point. The point is that word captures an alienation. It captures a distance. It captures this feeling that I don't really fit in. And that feeling mm. is true of immigrants. It's mm. true of people who were, who were brought here uh, as, uh, uh, as enslaved Africans. And, and also in your country, I think it would also fit... Um, Indigenous people, because even though it's their land, they've been made to feel like they're the diaspora, you know, like they're made mm-hmm. to feel like they're the alien when it's when when the land was there. So 
So we have this sense that whiteness and European um, powers have created this sense of alienation and distancing and marginalization, disinheritance, if you will, that I said, you know, let's speak from that space. Yeah. You use that, and, and now it makes so much sense. I'm glad we teased that out and, mm-hmm. and connect that now that uh, not merely the term, but its context extends yes. so much wider because yes. diaspora in this, in this way, you were using all the different or however many other intersections it mm-hmm. includes. Yes, yes, thank you. You're, you're seeing that. There's a, there's a, uh, just since my book came out, it was probably around the, maybe just right before it, I didn't get to incorporate, but Willie Jennings has a commentary in the book mm-hmm. of Acts. Mm-hmm. And in there he talks, he has a section where he, where he talks about early on, like in his intro, about this notion of being diaspora. And it's just this powerful quote but the essence of it is how how frail and fragile the life of folks in the diaspora situation is mm. when compared to the empire he mm. says something like your existence is only measured in terms of how beneficial you are to the empire uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, well marginal people get that right marginal <laughs> people get that and uh and immigrants get that women get that it's like you're only measured in terms your value is only in terms of what you can produce for the empire so when he said that i'm like yes he's catching what i'm trying to say because it's 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 that kind of distinction that's made yes in the new testament and i also think it's happening this has been happening in our world with imperialism and colonialism that um that the the that those who have formerly been colonized need uh, need to band together to say what we have learned as people of God in our marginal status is actually better representative, re- representative of the way of Jesus than the way the power people have been trying to show us Christianity. Oh, boy. <laughs> as you were speaking, I'm just connecting the dots here and realize yeah, yeah. in my own writing, in my own book yeah. that I'm trying yeah. to put together, I, awesome. that that motif I'm going to have to draw into the intersections of, of power systems because we yeah. have one now in the empire used empire language right. and it's the exact same relationship that we have in present day with with a capitalist system where your value as a person is right. measured in your utility in production to that system exactly exactly and, and it'll eat and you, you think, up and spit you out. Right. It'll eat you up and spit you out. And, and to say, how is that the way of Christ? Mm, but but yes, but if you, yes. but if your church is born out of that world, yeah. then that's the way you measure success. That's uh-huh. the way you measure faith. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's what we're seeing with uh, with, um, you know, with the uh, with even down here with the Republican Party. And and I'm not really trying to talk partisan stuff. But what we're seeing is the folks who champion typical sort of capitalistic American way of being have baptized that as Christian. Yes. And I'm like, but our first century forebears would have not said that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, oh yeah. So I know America is not wrong, but at the same time, isn't there a Christianity that should transcend those things? And, and I think that's what marginal, uh, marginalized people show us is that the way of faith transcends your, your, those power systems that humans produce, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> There's a tweet. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, there's a word for that. We call it the Protestant work ethic. Yeah, yeah how's that going? Exactly. It's working out yeah, for some right. people, <laughs> hey? 
Some people right. get it. it works out They're getting real good. And they, <laughs> and, but they think that it's, it's born out of your effort. And I'm like, mm. my goodness, the hardest working people in the world uh-huh. are not, uh-huh. uh, are not in capitalist countries. They're not uh-huh. in, you know, they, they, they might not even be Protestant. You know I mean? The people in these developing countries who work hours and hours a day, yeah. who, who are showing all kinds of determination and grit. And we say, oh no, Really, the successful person is the person who's spending, you know, twenty hours a week playing golf, and uh, and has other and having other people work for them, and that becomes the model of of uh, of faith and and success. It's broken. Oh man, you're not kidding. It's broken, and I and I know the Lord knows it's broken. So I don't want to speak from any self righteous way. The Lord knows it's broken, but I think he's he's working through the folks who have been pushed to the side to say, here's what the better way can look like. And that's, and I want to be part of that, you know, that this better way of the faith, which is like the way of Jesus, is not going to come from the top down power mm-hmm. broker mm-hmm. way of being. And I, and I just want to be part of that, that thing that God's doing. Amen. Amen. We got to get into your chapter you use the power motif, um, the power of God, of diaspora people, the power, and you have one on worship. I was just recently preaching, you know what, my whole past year has been uh, a lingering in lamentation, uh, in lament. We have such uh, poor formation, at least in my um, church experience, around lament. It's praise and worship, not lamentation. That's what we call it, right? And and COVID, the pandemic, the calls for justice have all been reasons to just stay in this season of lament as we enter in another Lent season, lamentation. And the book of James, as I was preaching on Sunday, says that God sides with those who mourn, you know, and you have a chapter now on a mode of worship. And I'm not sure you did draw in lamentation, but uh, you use the words of worship as a mechanism unto justice. Mm -hmm. And that's not something we have practices around. Forming worship experiences as a mechanism an expression of justice. Yeah. Unpack yeah. this for us. Well, I will try. I think my model has been what the what the experts have said about enslaved Africans in America in, in when we consider say like the spirituals. Mm-hmm. So you've got these songs born out of pain. And they weren't just to make the workday go by. It was mm-hmm. also to say something about the character of God and about there being a life beyond this life, right? So, so that sense of being able to denounce injustice and to uh, affirm the way the, the the delivering power of God came through those songs. You know, even Du Bois called you know had had. Uh, big discussion on the uh, on the slave songs, I think, as he called them. So the, my, my point was to say worship is this expression of what ought to be, not just mm-hmm. how I'm feeling today 
or just how you know happy god or somebody calling you know jesus my boyfriend songs it's there there's there's a sense of of the justice comes out because we're singing about what ought to be and what mm-hmm. god mm-hmm. how god is in the world and then we try to model that with our lives so so you know the, the prophets got after this right i don't care about the festivals and the feasts the lord said all this i want justice to roll down i want mm-hmm. i want righteousness to flow like a waterfall i mean this is that's the way of being that's the way of worship right so the songs are part of it but the songs reflect something they're reflecting this justice oriented god who wants his people to live in this way you know of mm-hmm. affirming who he is and how he works in the world. So, yeah, that's what I was trying to say in there. And um, I know we get hung up on the stylings and all those things. I, I'm at, I'm so old now that I've been in so many different contexts that, uh, now I'm not super old, but I've been around long enough that I have seen, oh my goodness, low church, high church. I mean, I've been in a lot of different contexts. So to me, it's not so much the form, it's that if your forms are where you stop and that's what you focus so much on, then I think you're missing the real way of the power of worship is in this justice-oriented way of life that mm. I think the prophets talk about, and I would say even in the New Testament is talked about. Yeah. We don't have the the formation, I think, to reimagine worship yes. beyond the songs. Yes, thank you, thank you. Well said. We yeah. don't have the picture of high or low church, and this is, and dare I say it, what COVID has provided is an opportunity for us to at least reimagine what that Sunday morning is. Because the centers, whether you're high, low, liturgical, contemporary, doesn't matter. You have the same stuff, and it's a prayer, five songs, announcements, and then someone (laughs) preaches for 30 to 45 minutes, and you wrote like 52 weeks of a year. And we have no formation to imagine anything beyond singing. My goodness, you 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 captured it, and I and as and as um, you know, I, I mean, you said it, and I guess when I was younger and first felt the call to ministry, I was I I rejected it because I thought, my goodness, that responsibility of being up in front of everybody and saying, "Thus says the Lord," you know. I, mm-hmm. But then as time went on, I started realizing, okay, I, I embraced that part of it. But even as time went on, I realized, but this isn't it. Right. I mean, mm. it's not. But but every church I well, I planted two churches, but the churches that I worked for, all this energy goes into Sunday, Sunday, oh, yeah. because that's the day. Right. That's yeah. that's got to yeah. pay the bills that day. Yeah. we got to get people to keep yeah. coming back. There. Maybe people will you know, get converted that day, too. So, <laughs> so it's good. I mean, we hope for that. But at the same time, it's almost like we don't know how to help people. No. The word formation you so important because we don't know how to mm. we didn't know how to help people to say this mm. is one expression of your whole way of life. You know, we come together this day, but this is one piece of the whole, of your whole way of being, you know. I think more people are seeing that. We need to be okay with trying different things, and that's the blank slate, I think, that's in front of us, especially as Sunday mornings have been pushed away or pushed online. Like it, it, yeah, yeah. And ironically, Cypher Church and wh- how we've embodied worship, one time we did the songs and the preaching, but other times we've just tried to, to embody different things, movement, wow. dance, spoken word, poetry, writing. Oh, that's awesome. All of these, di- and, and we'll switch it up every week but in in these pandemic times we've done the opposite end of the spectrum where we just are trying to hold some sense 
of being online and yeah. having simple prayer and a word and that's it. Which I think wow. in this world is, is if that's all you got, that's okay. But if yeah, you're trying to I replicate think. Sunday with the online band and through the screen and so forth, you, your imagination is being stuck. Something is preventing it from thinking of greater and grander things of where God is at work in our, in our neighborhood wow. city and beyond. Yeah, well, my heart is with you all. I, I mean, I, I'm not pastoring right now. I'm full-time as a professor. And my heart is with all of you church leaders because it's hard to know how to manage this pandemic. Mm -hmm. But I do think what, you, what you're getting, at least how I'm hearing you, is that there's, there's this weird and maybe unique opportunity to be creative and creative in a sense of just thinking outside of what has always been and not trying to replicate what we've always done and just throw it online. I'm hearing you say this is a chance to try to get get to some get to the to the core of who we are and what we're about and not just the forms of it. So yeah. I, I find something yeah. refreshing in that. And to test, I mean so I mean mm -hmm. I, I did throw this out there that this is the time and so forth and then mm -hmm. and then some folks did chime back in and say, listen, all I'm trying to do as a pastor right now is survive. I have no energy <laughs> to imagine right. anything. And you know yeah. what? That just, I hear that. Yeah, I hear that too. And so maybe I got to write up on something. Well, yeah. the final thought, I think, as I pull out your book here, is we linger around the embodied space, just how we can embody Christ yeah. in the spirit of of activity of justice. Right. Yes. Uh, your book here says worship can be protest. Mm -hmm. It can be subversive. Mm -hmm. Now we, I know we just spoke about the forms and so forth, but, uh, and, and you gave an example of the spirituals. What does right. protest and subversive worship look like? Yes. So I take, I take one quick example I'll think of in the old time, and then I'll try to make it connect to the present time. So you take, you take the Palm Sunday incident, right? Jesus comes into Jerusalem. I call that a public protest. I call that a subversive act because he is, he's flipping the script. You know, um, he's not, you know, on the big white horse. He's coming on the donkey. You see that. But then also all these things happen that agitate the power brokers. You got people who are yelling, you know, Hosanna, and he's and they're telling him to silence the crowd. And he says no. And then he goes into the temple after that. And Matthew's gospel tells us he goes into the temple and he heals folks who who didn't have full access into the temple. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. right after that, he blesses the children. So it's like he's messing with everybody's stuff, you know, in this day. And uh, so he's he's riding in as this kind of king. He's healing po folks. He's so when I say worship is subversive and countercultural is that we have made it be about, hey, look how great we are. Look how sharp we can do things. Uh, look how powerful and rich we are. And instead, maybe what, what we're saying is, it's when we see the uh, young folks saying Black Lives Matter and are standing in the face of injustice mm -hmm. and making public protests, maybe there's a way that the church can say, you know what, we, we have a voice to raise here too. And worship means that we're going to we're going to celebrate who God is and, and God's affirmation of, of God's creation. So that means we at times take it to the streets. It means at times we have to 
uh, hear the voice of the children, like uh, like that Matthew passage, or we spend ourselves for the poor, is the way Isaiah would say it. So that's what I mean by subversion. It's, mm-hmm. it, 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 it undermines the typical way of doing things and says that there's a Jesus way of doing it that brings the power from from under and from the sides and not from the top, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I mean by that. I, I don't know like what that means for people's budgets in church or how they're gonna do their Sunday service, but if they can at least mm-hmm. come to the table with those ideas, then I say, then the creative juices can start. I mean, if you if you can get your leadership or however you structure churches on the same page to say, you know what, this is what our end goal is, is to see our community uh, um, blessed, to see transformation, to see these. If that's the end goal, then how do we shape what we're doing now to get there? Right. And I feel mm-hmm. like we've almost made it always the end goal is can we be Willow Creek or or mm-hmm. Saddleback? You know, and at least in my era, those were those were the big churches yeah, that everybody same, was talking about. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean. So I think sometimes we saw that as the end goal. And I'm saying, no, there's something else. (laughs) So that's the subversive part in my mind. (laughs) Would you, in that same week, and this is really neat that you use the Passion Week as one Mm -hmm. of calling into subversive narratives and Mm -hmm. a a dance of protest that connects to... (laughs) Oh, I like that. Dance of protest. That's awesome. (laughs) That connects to Drew, uh, Drew Hart, Dr. Drew Hart, he, who's out, oh, will be yes. on the podcast too. Um, awesome. He leverages out the story of Barabbas on the other end. That's right. Would you call the act of Jesus toppling the tables in the temple a subversive act of worship? Yes, yes. And, you know, it's interesting you say, oh, my goodness, Drew is a friend of mine. And that his chapter on Barabbas, that was really something. I yeah, hadn't yeah. actually worked it out the way he did. I thought it was good. Well, actually, that's where the subtitle of my book comes from, The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Justice. Uh-huh. So I didn't actually do an exposition of that section. Mm-hmm. But we thought by putting it in the title, people would be imagining that. Oh, okay. so, so, yeah, so that was so I'm glad that you went there because I definitely see that as the case. So Jesus... Mm. Uh, upsets the status quo literally upsets turns over the tables and now here's a little thing it's we we mostly focus on the economics that are happening there so you get these questions about oh is it that they're cheating people out of money and all this stuff Mm. what's really weird is that some new testament scholars point out that this language of you've made it a den of thieves or den of robbers is a word that's often translated insurrectionist Mm. it's the same word that jesus uses when they come for him in the garden and he says, look, you could, you know, what was I doing? Am I an insurrectionist? It's the same word that's used for the two guys who got crucified alongside Jesus. The old King James says two robbers or something, but thieves. But it's a word that means people who were uh, who were against the government. They were insurrectionists. So so Jesus, as, as uh, one scholar, uh, Grant, the late Grant Osborne says, he indicts these folks for using the temple as a, this is his words, a mafia-like stronghold. So his point is that the temple has has lost its function. So when he's upsetting the tables, it's more than just about the money. It's about the way power is being used in uh, in, in in Jerusalem there, at least among some religious elite. And, I, and if that's true, I'm like, whoa! Mm. You know, there's this big indictment that the religious elite are using the church yeah. to, for their own power and purposes. And I think we're seeing that. Uh, uh, upsets those tables, yeah.
Reverend Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a treat to have someone come in with such high credentials and experience and talk to you as a friend. That's affirmation to generations of leaders who are coming up behind the experience and the leadership of Dr. Edwards. Reverend Dr. Edwards. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram, Rev Dr. Dre. So R-E-V-D-R-D-R-E. You can also find his book, Might from the Margins, wherever fine books are sold, like your local bookstore and not that trash heap, Amazon. This is a episode, an episode that... I think I'll be coming back to you often. I kept it all in one hour, but there are key pieces here, both of a glimpse to future leadership, but also a sense for marginalized people of what it means to recenter themselves and to raise their voice, to become mighty from the margins and basically to create from the margins a new way of being, a new foundation, a reimagination of faith. Well, that's going to be it for season four, although there are rumors a bonus episode will come out in a month. Rumors. The rumors are true. But Dr. Edwards closes us off here. Thank you so much. You can support this podcast. Check it out, rohatty.com. You can find me at rohatty on Twitter and rohatty.negazar on Instagram and Facebook. Please share this podcast far and wide. Let me know what you thought of it. Tell your mom, your mom's friends, your friends, and everybody. That's it for now as we prep up for the bonus episode and also season five.